Hello everyone, welcome to Knox Bedtime Stories. I'm your friend Joey, here to help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep. It's 1am here, I hope you're all feeling well and had a productive day. If you didn't, that's okay, we'll get a good night's sleep and have a better day tomorrow. Tonight, I have a funny news story, which I haven't done in a while. But the story was so ridiculously stupid, I had to include it in the show. I also have a sci-fi story tonight, which almost isn't sci-fi anymore. It's about a movie theater. That's the only clue I'm going to give you. We also have chapters 12 and 13 of Glinda of Oz for Patreon members. One dollar and up, which will be converted into a full book when I finish it in about a month. I'm also working on much longer stories for my five dollar and up patrons, which take time to complete. I'm one person doing the planning, photoshopping, researching stories, marketing, answering questions. I've read over 120 books this year quality content that won't scare or trigger people and I do the web design too. I want to do merchandise rewards for patrons at least bracelets and cards but at 22 patrons it's just not possible. If you're new to the Knox family welcome. I hope I'm able to bring you some calm and comfort at bedtime for a long time to come. From here on out, nothing exists except you, me, this beautiful fireplace, and the bed, couch, or floor you're laying on. Before we get to our funny news story, I would like to thank our newest Patreon patron, Stason Tiskowitz. I know I probably butchered pronouncing that, so I apologize if I messed up. In my defense, I can barely pronounce my name, and I made sure I spelled it right at KnoxBedtimeStories.com. According to Google, it's of Polish origin. Of course, Google could be wrong, but I'm certain it's of Earth origin. So, thank you, Stason, for helping keep the podcast alive. It's a lot of work for me to keep the show going. Can you all believe it's been a year now? A year over 100,000 downloads. And that's excluding the tens of thousands of hours where people listen and don't download. 22 patrons in a year and I haven't earned enough to buy anything other than a keyboard. Which I swear has an extra key and is annoying the hell out of me. I should probably take the time out to thank each of my patrons, so thank you so much to Tractorpool, Enchanted, Annette Kirkbow, Joey, Donna, Leah Patterson, Matt Hutchison, Taz Ainsworth, Alan Walks, Bestel, Diego, Blake, Debbie Newman, Deanna Miner, Joan Dutill, Liz James, Linda Sibley, Deborah Mathias, 
Robert Hayes, Stacen Tiskiewicz, Maggie Adams, Claire Olena, Hevisba Kilbrode, and Nikki Gore Green. And especially Nikki Gore Green, who basically pays for half the podcast. Without her, I would have had to end the show completely next month. Which means we really need new patrons badly. Hopefully, more people will help and keep the show growing. I don't think people realize how much work goes into keeping this going. Especially with two shows a week with Patreon plus unannounced projects. And I've been spending the very little money that's left over for ads. So I basically get nothing for 60 to 80 hours a week of work. So if you're feeling generous and the show makes a difference in bringing you comfort at night. Nothing is more important than a good night's sleep because it leads to a relaxed and more alert day. If you would like to become one of the few and proud patrons, you can do so at KnoxBedtimeStories.com and clicking the Join Patron link or Patreon.com forward slash KnoxBedtimeStories. Something as little as a dollar makes a difference. Although, I wouldn't do less than $2 because of the way Patreon does things. I don't earn what it says on the front page. I wanted to get rid of the dollar a month pledge. There's only like three and the rest are $2 or more. But, Patreon makes everything difficult. I set a goal of 30 patrons by September 1st, which is very reasonable. So let's try and hit that. Please like and subscribe on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Knox Bedtime Stories and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash Knox Bedtime Stories. I post pretty much every other day and get little love, especially on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you to all my patrons who have stuck with me through thick and thin. Okay, for tonight's bizarre goofy news story. People do some goofy stuff. This news story is called Spud Speculation. Mystery bowls of mashed potatoes left around Mississippi neighborhood. An unknown person is leaving bowls of mashed potatoes around a Mississippi neighborhood and residents say they want to know who's leaving the delicious but suspicious looking bowls and why. The bowls of mashed potatoes recently began showing up in various places around Jackson's Bellhaven neighborhood, residents told local media. I got up and was headed to work at 7 o'clock and there was just a styrofoam bowl of mashed potatoes on the doorsteps right there, resident Sebastian told WJTV. His is just one of many sightings of the side dish. They found bowls of mashed potatoes on their mailboxes, on their cars. So, we don't know if someone is playing a prank or if someone just had a lot of leftover, said resident Jordan Lewis, 
The neighborhood has previously done some quirky things, Lewis said. Like decorate road signs and put Christmas trees in potholes. But the mashed potato stunt is a first. As news of the mashed potatoes has spread, so is speculation on what the bowls mean. People have theorized online that the potatoes are a harmless prank. Others fear the bowls could be poisoned. For now, the motive because the mashed potatoes has remained a mystery. The neighbors who spoke to the news station said they don't plan on getting police involved. There are no reports of anyone actually eating the mashed potatoes, the Jackson Clarion Ledger reported. Okay, now let's get to bed. Say to yourself, my bedroom is a place of peace and relaxation. When I enter this room and crawl into bed at night, today's thoughts naturally begin to soften. My burden lightens and sleep is coming. Let's get to tonight's story, Reality Unlimited, set to sleep-inducing music and this beautiful fireplace. If you're not already laying down, please do so in whatever way is comfortable. And let's begin. It was going to be the show of the century, absolutely the tops. There was a line of eight blocks long outside the theater. The theater that had been specially built to contain Ultra-Rama. Paul Hendricks had been in line since early the morning before, and so he was only a block or so from the still unopened ticket booth. His wife had come by from time to time, bringing sandwiches and coffee. Hendricks was determined to get a pair of tickets. He turned to the man next to him, got the time? Five to nine. That's what I thought. That means the ticket office opens in five minutes. Hendricks rose on tiptoe and squinted ahead. There must be 500 people ahead of us. They say the theater holds 5,000. I know. And what, you get the same effect no matter where you sit. But still, I'd like to be right down there in the front. The other man nodded. That goes for all of us. Hendricks grinned. You know, this is the first time I ever heard of an opening performance being managed right. I mean, thrown open for public sale instead of being reserved for bigwigs. Damned public spirit, the other agreed. Suddenly, the line began to edge forward. They're selling tickets. The booth is open. About an hour later, Hendricks plunked down his $20 before the efficient-looking girl in the ticket cage and was handed a bulky envelope. These are my tickets? That's right, sir. A little puzzled but happy, he turned away and dug in the envelope. He pulled out not the familiar pasteboards, but two costly-looking, sumptuous, 
engraved invitations on thick, stiff paper. They said, You are invited to the first showing anywhere in the world of Ultra Rama. The sensational new film process realer than life. Wednesday, April 25th, 1973, at 8 p.m. Clutching the invitations as if they were his leases on life, Hendrick stepped into the Quicktrans and moments later stepped out again just outside the door. His wife was waiting for him with an expectant look on her face. Did you get them? I sure did. Two engraved invitation at ten bucks a throw. They'd better be worth it, she said anxiously. Didn't you see that line when you brought me breakfast? Eight blocks. Hundreds and hundreds of people all trying to get to see the first performance. That doesn't mean a thing, she said. After all, no one's ever seen the complete movie. It's not a movie, he corrected. Alright, the complete whatchamacallit. No one's ever seen the complete thing, not even the people who made it. So how do you know it's good? Believe me, honey, this is going to be the greatest ever. On Wednesday, April 25th, 1973, at 7.30 in the evening, the Hendrick stood in the midst of a vast crowd that thronged open plaza before the Ultrama Theater. The theater itself was a towering edifice that had been built for this production. It was one of the world's most impressive buildings. All right, all right, a policeman shouted. Ticket holders come this way. The rest of you stay back. They cleared a channel through the mob and the Hendricks, along with several hundred other early arrivees followed along to the door of the vast theater. What are all these people doing here? Miss Hendricks asked. Her husband shrugged. Maybe they plan on crashing the gate. Or possibly they think there may be some tickets left. I tell you, we're awfully lucky to be where we are right now. He extended the invitations to a tall, haughty-looking doorman in a resplendent uniform. The doorman merely nodded and gestured them inside. Don't they tear up the tickets? Not on opening night, Hendrick said. They're letting us keep them as souvenirs. They stepped inside and found themselves in a vast, almost boundless vestibule carpeted with deep pile synthophone of a lush purple color. Vaulting arches of gleaming metal swept upward to the barely visible ceiling. If this is just the foyer, Paul Hendricks said, imagine what it must be inside. His wife nudged him. Look, isn't that shocking? A girl about 17 was coming toward them, smiling cheerfully. Hendricks blinked. She wore only two nearly transparent strips of shimmering cloth over one of her breasts 
and the other wrapped around her hips. Good evening, she said. I'm your usher. May I show you to your seats? They really put on a show here, Hendricks muttered. The girl glanced at the invitation he was clutching and beckoned them to follow her. She led the way, twitching her hips invitingly. A bright aluminoid door loomed before them. The girl touched a switch and the door slid back, revealing the actual interior of the theater. Hendrix gasped. It was nearly the size of a football stadium, where the playing field should be receipts, elaborate plush pneumatic affairs, and ringing the seats was the screen. The screen covered the entire wall, floor, ceiling. It hemmed the audience in completely. As Hendrix took his seat, he felt totally surrounded by it. They waited impatiently for the half hour to pass. The theater filled up rapidly, with first-nighters in all their finery. I'm glad we wore our formal clothes, dear. Yes, Hendrix said, looking at the others. This is quite an event. Quite an event. The theater was totally filled by 8 p.m. sharp. The corpse of near-nude usheresses performed their jobs swiftly and efficiently, and suddenly a voice said welcome to Ultra-Rama. It was a cultured, soft female voice, and it came from so close to him that he glanced in surprise at his wife. But she was looking at him. She had heard the voice too. It continued. You are about to witness the most spectacular form of entertainment ever conceived by the mind of man. Twelve years of concentrated work went into producing what you are about to see, and no one but you will experience it. Each of you will be taking part, each of you will, as the series of scenes we have assembled unfolds. He caught up in the reality of the Ultra-Rama. The realer-than-reality Ultra-Reality of Ultra-Rama. Shall we begin? The lights in the theater dimmed, and the vast screen came to life. It was incredible, and they were in Africa. The huge plains of South Africa opened out before them. Hendrix turned his head, looking around in astonishment. The audience seemed to have disappeared. He was alone in a world of yellowing grass and strange thick trees. A flat world where death could strike at any moment. In the distance, he saw four grotesque shapes. Giraffes moving along in their ungainly but yet tremendously rapid way, their long necks projecting stiffly from their bodies. He repressed a chuckle, and then a low growl made him jump. He backed against a rough bark tree and felt sweat cascade down his body 
as a tawny sprang from between a twisted shrub, pounced on one of the giraffes, smashed the fragile neck with a fierce swipe of a paw. The lioness, sudden death springing from nowhere, a bright streak that brought violence. Hendrix looked around uneasily. The giraffes had fled. The lioness was dragging her kill into the underbrush. The warm smell of death was in the air. That and the buzzing of green-eyed flies an inch long. Perched on a scrawny, almost leafless tree were hooded ugly shapes. Vultures. Are they waiting for me? This was too real. This was unbearably real. A herd of gazelles came bounding out of the background, relieving some of the tension. The lovely creatures seemed to float along, touching the ground only at occasional intervals. Behind them marched the dull gray bulks of a herd of elephants shambling with a ponderous gait. This was Africa. This was the real thing, Hendricks told himself. It wasn't a show, though some magic the Ultra-Rama people had actually sent him there. He moved away, investigating. A sluggish slack streak wound through the jungle, curious. Hendricks walked toward it. Dark logs lay strewn, almost at random in the shallow muddy waters at the sides of the streams. But as he watched, one of the logs yawned, showing a double row of deadly teeth slid sleepily off into deeper waters. Crocodiles. Death threatened everywhere in the jungle. Monkeys chittered overhead. Bright plumaged birds flapped from tree to tree. Hendricks felt the heat. His nostrils drew the smell. This was real. He wondered if it would ever end. If he would ever return to the neat little city apartment and to his wife and children. He glanced away from the stream looked up at the sun blazing in the bright blue sky. And abruptly, Black Death came roaring at him from a tree. Hendricks had just a moment to recognize it. A leopard, black, sleek, moving with the easy grace of a machine designed for killing. He toppled backward under the impetus of the beast's ferocious attacks smelled the soft musky smell of the killer. Then claws reached for his throat. Hot barbs of red pain shot through him. He screamed out, fought, tried to hold the snapping jaws away. No, no, it isn't real. Get away from me. And in that instant, Africa vanished. The second illusion that soft voice next to his ear said. He was again alone in an unfamiliar place. A lady's boudoir he saw. 
A satin-covered spread lay over a wide, inviting bed. Dressing tables were laden with perfumes and cosmetics. Behind him, the door opened. A woman entered. He had never seen her before. She was tall, dressed only in a filmy negligee that barely concealed her long, sleek legs, her firm breasts. She was all he had ever wanted in a woman. She awakened desires that had been dead in him for 20 years. Hello, she said. Her voice was throbbingly throaty. I've waited a long time for you, Paul Hendricks. How did she know his name? How? Then he stopped asking questions. She had glided close to him, stood there, bosom gently rising against and falling, looking into his eyes. She was nearly as tall as he. He smelled her enticing perfume. Come, she said, taking his hand. She led him toward a chase lounge. He frowned, but my wife... He murmured, feeling like seventeen different kinds of idiot, as he said the words. Your wife is happy where she is. Come to me, Paul. She drew him down beside her. What seemed like hours went by, suddenly, and felt a rough hand grab him, awakening him. A stranger stood there, fully dressed, menace glinting in his eyes. Who is this man, Lewis? he demanded. Wide-eyed, shock was evident on the woman's face. But I didn't expect you until... Of course not. Hendricks watched in horror as the newcomer drew a gun from his pocket. He lifted it. The barrel seemed to point directly at Hendricks' eyes. The finger began to tighten on the trigger. The third illusion, said a soft voice. He blinked, orientating himself to the new illusion, and saw that he was in an immense stadium. Curiously garbed people were staring down at him. My God, he thought, the Colosseum. And even as he thought of recognition burst upon him, he saw his opponent advancing over the bloody sand. It was a swarthy, broad-shouldered man in a leather tunic, wielding a thick, short sword. Swordsman against Netman. It was deadly, deadly. Hendricks knew enough history to be aware of what was expected of him. He had to ensnare the swordsman in the net and kill him with the trident before the fierce sword could pierce his heart. It was anything but an equal contest, but the proper agility, the sword flashed on high. Desperately, Hendricks parried it with his hilt of his trident and whirled the net through the air. The swordsman laughed and leaped back. Hendricks advanced, looking for an opening. The roars of the crowds were deafening. 
He swung the net tentatively, readying himself for the cast. Tired muscles throbbed in his arms and thighs. The swordsman retreated deftly, smiling. He looked confident. Hendricks began the cast. Suddenly, the sword flashed again. It was a lightning-fast attack. Hendricks managed to get the trident up to protect himself. The impact sent pain coursing up his arm, and numbed, he dropped the three-pronged weapon. Laughing jovially, his opponent kicked the trident far across the stadium and advanced with the sword. Hendricks knew what he had to do. He dropped to his knees before the advancing swordsman and gestured towards the audience. The swordsman nodded. He lifted the sword, held it over Hendricks' head, and looked up at the grand eyes. Hendricks looked up as well. The thumbs were down, emphatically so. The sword began to descend. The fourth illusion, said the voice. He was racing madly down the Indianapolis Speedway, bobbing along at nearly 150 miles an hour in a flimsy-looking little racing auto. Blurs whizzed by on all sides. Ahead of him, he saw a car suddenly swerve into the embankment and burst into a mass of flames. With desperate urgency, he yanked on the wheel, tried to avoid the pileup, and failed. He felt the car going over end into the air and shut his eyes waiting for the explosion that would follow. The fifth illusion, the voice said. He was in a prehistoric jungle. Strange, stumpy trees were all around lush vegetation. A slow-moving beast of immense size was thundering away from him, its tiny head close to the ground snapping up vegetation with cease. Overhead, a leather-winged flying reptile moved through the air in a jerky swoops. There was sudden thunder behind him. He turned. Through a haze of giant mosquitoes, he saw a mountain of a beast advancing toward him, tiny forepaws clutching the air, vast head opening to reveal foot-long teeth. He started to run, but even as he did so, he knew it was fruitless. In the steamy jungle sweat poured down him like summer rain. The hot breath of the Tyrannosaur was only a few feet behind him. Hendricks turned, looked up. The mighty jaws were opening. The knife-like teeth beckoned. No, he screamed, no. Suddenly, all went blank. He sat in a numb silence for an instant, realizing he was back in the theater. The voice in his ear said, There will be a brief intermission before proceeding with the remaining half of the program.
Please remain in your seats to avoid confusion. Thank you. Hendrick shook his head wearily. He was dizzy, utterly exhausted. His stiff white shirt had lost all its starch. He was bathed in sweat. His hands shook. His fingernails, he noticed, had been chewed to the quick. He felt as if he had been to Helen back. He finally mustered enough strength to look over at his wife. She was sitting back in her plush chair, utterly beaten. He glanced around the theater. The other first-nighters were sitting in attitudes ranging from glassy-eyed exhaustion to complete nervous breakdown. The second part of the program will begin in three minutes, the pleasant voice said. Oh no it won't, Hendricks muttered out loud. His voice sounded like a harsh croak in his ears. He seized his wife by the hand. She felt cold, clammy. Let's go, Dot. Let's get out of here. She came to life and nodded in silent agreement. Weakly, they tottered down the vast aisle, past the pretty near-nude usherettes, through the huge vestibule, out into the coolness of the night air and the relative peace of the city. There were still some people gathered outside. How is it? Real nice? Is it over? Hey, you leaving so soon? Hendricks ignored them. He held a jet cab, helped his wife in, staggered in himself. He gave the driver his address. You coming from the Ultrarama show? The driver asked. Hendricks nodded. Swell thing, ain't it? It's supposed to be real, and I mean real. It sure is, Hendricks agreed. He leaned back and tried to relax. His nerves were still quivering like overtaught harp strings. It's quite a thing, he said, but not for me. I'm going home. I'm going to take a nice calming shower, a sedative, and get in bed. Then I'm going to read a nice quiet book. How about you, Dot? She nodded. That's real enough for me, she said. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you found the show helpful and want to make sure it's around for others to enjoy, please go to KnoxBedtimeStories.com and click the Patreon button. There are various rewards and it ensures that the show will be here every Monday for a long time to come. I wish you all a good night's sleep and a happy peaceful life. May the best of your todays be the worst of your tomorrows. Good night.